Hello, and welcome to the Claremont Bible Fellowship Bible Instruction Time. We now turn you over to our speaker for the day. Our speaker, Jeff, when's the last time you were here? 2019? Okay, not too bad, three years. All right, before all the COVID stuff. Well, it's good to have you back, and we're looking forward to what the Lord's going to say to us through you. So we'll turn our Bible Instruction Time now over to our brother Jeff Rogers. Yes, it's, it's great to be back. We were booked to come in 2020, but that obviously got cancelled. But we're here, we're, we're minus a few Davidsons and we're plus a few Rogers. So I'll let you decide whether that's a, that's a positive or a negative. Um, you can maybe tell us at the end, um, at the end of our holiday. You know, I want to speak on, on the book of Romans, chapter number 8. And I appreciate Frankie reading that um, this morning. We'll maybe just turn to one verse in chapter 1. We'll read it, and then if you would turn, please, to chapter 8, and just keep that open um, before you. It will be helpful just to come down through it. I want you to do plenty of looking at your Bible, and not very much looking up here this morning as we come down through these aspects. So we'll just read, just for, for connection in the book, Romans chapter 1 and verse number 17. <clears throat> Romans one seventeen. Romans 1.17, For therein is the righteousness of God revealed from faith to faith, as it is written, and this is this well-known verse found in the book of Habakkuk originally, and three times in the New Testament, Hebrews, Galatians, and now here in Romans, the just shall live by faith. The just shall live by faith. So just turn over to Romans chapter 8, please. And I'll bring you down through a few of the verses and then we'll pause and go into a little bit more detail from about verse number 18 on. So as soon as, as, soon as I mentioned Romans chapter 18, I hope the first thing that came flooding into your mind was, oh, that's the Holy Spirit chapter of the New Testament. Because that's exactly what this passage is all about. It's all about the Spirit of God, the Holy Spirit. And I suppose if I was to put just a little title over my, my message um, this morning, and it's not my title, it's very important to give credit to who it is that wrote the title, um, I would say something is that the apostle in this chapter wants to make sure that the Christian life is not one that's lived and hemmed in by rules and regulations or the restraint of an external code, but rather the constraint of an internal power, the Holy Spirit. It's important to give credit to who wrote that. That's not my title. It reminds me of the, of the story of the, of the young preacher. He, he, he was preaching over, I think it was England somewhere, and he had an awful bad habit of just quoting chunks of commentaries. <clears throat> there was the two wise acres in the front and they sat and they were listening to what he had to say and as he started to do this whole quotation from, from some commentary, the old man, he nudged the boy beside him and he says, that's a wee bit of, of Spurgeon we're getting. And the man, he preached on and he kept going and that was good and, and the next thing, he was quoting this other big chunk and the, the man, he nudged his friend again and he says, that's a wee bit of, that's a wee bit of, of J.N. Darby we're getting now. And he kept going and he kept going and the third time he nudged him, he says, he's on to, he's on to John MacArthur now. <clears throat> and the young preacher, he noticed this, <clears throat> and he stopped the meeting. And he said, now listen, you two men, you're putting me off, and you have to stop. And if you don't stop, I'll put you out. So the other boy, he nudged back, and he says, well, at least that's a bit of himself that we're getting now. <laughs> so 
This is, this is not myself. This is a quotation that I think summarized this verse again. I'll give it one more time and then we'll move on. The apostle is wanting to make clear that the Christian life is not one lived and hemmed in by rules and regulations or the restraint of an external power, but rather the constraint of an internal power. And that power is the Spirit of God. So I'm conscious that we're diving into the middle of a book. So let's just take a step back just for a few minutes and just see where is Romans 8 in relation to this book. And that's why we read that verse at the very start in Romans chapter 1, the just shall live by faith. Because you could hang the different sections of the book of Romans on the three expressions found in that verse. In fact, if you were to read that verse, and I've just remembered that Buck told me to talk slow, so I'm going to slow way down. <coughs> And, and as I progress, I will speed up, so maybe you could listen faster as I progress, and we'll, we'll come to some kind of agreement in the middle there. So that, that expression, the just shall live by faith, if you were to look at that in, in the original language, in Hebrew and Greek, and the way it was written, the order is slightly different, and it, it comes like this, the just by faith shall live. So that's the order of it in the original. Just keep that in mind, the just by faith shall live. So if you take the first two words, the just, you could hang Romans chapters 1, 2, and 3 upon that. That's what we're being told by Paul, why a man needs justified, how it is that he needs justified. The first three chapters of the book of of, of Romans come up with that that thought of the just. So in the next little expression in between by faith, you could hang Romans chapter 4 and half of Romans chapter 5 upon that. So the just Romans 1 to 3, by faith, how we become justified. It's through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And then the last little section, um, the, the just by faith shall live. You can hang Romans chapters number, um, the rest of 5, 6, 7, and 8. So the just, Romans 1 to 3, by faith, Romans 4 and half of 5, and then shall live the rest of five, six, seven, and the the chapter that we are in today. So that's the argument of the chapter. So really, just first understand, we're in the living part of the book of Romans, okay? And, I mean, let me identify that to you. Just cast your eye down the verses. Look out for the word life. So there, can you see in, 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 in verse number two of chapter eight, for the law of the spirit of life. We're just looking at this quickly. Verse six, be spiritually minded is life. Verse 10, by the spirit is Life. Verse 11, shall also quicken or make alive your mortal bodies. Verse 12, we are debtors not to the flesh, to live after the flesh. Verse 13, for if ye live after the flesh, ye shall die. Um, and the end of that verse says again, ye shall live. So we're understanding, as we dive into Romans chapter number 8, we're in the living section of the book of Romans. And that's what we're thinking about. I want you to notice the abundance that's found in this chapter. I said at the start that this is the Holy Spirit chapter of the New Testament. And in this chapter, you will find the Holy Spirit referred to on 19 occasions. There's 21 references to the Spirit. Two of them relation, is relation to the believer's Spirit. So on no fewer than 19 occasions, the Holy Spirit is mentioned in this chapter. Now, if you think about that in relation to the other chapters of the New Testament, the one that comes closest to it is 1 Corinthians chapter 10, where the Holy Spirit is mentioned on 11 occasions. But if you know Roman, or if you know 1 Corinthians chapter number 12, you'll know that that's used in relation to a title 
um, of, of, of the gift. So it's the gifts of the Spirit. So there's a bit of repetition there. It's really only making one point. So as we consider the amount of times, the abundance of references to the Holy Spirit in this chapter, we're really beginning to understand that this chapter is all about the Holy Spirit. And if we want to understand the Holy Spirit and the way that we live, Romans chapter number 8 is a, a chapter that's very much for our consideration. Romans chapter 1 to 7, the Holy Spirit is mentioned five times. <clears throat> Romans chapter number 9 to 16, the Holy Spirit is mentioned eight times, but 19 times in chapter number so we, we can see the, the concentration of it. Let me identify that to you quickly. Just look now for the word spirit as we cast our eye down the chapter. We'll not go through every single reference. Look at the end of verse number one. Walk not after the flesh, but after the spirit. Look at verse two. For the law of the spirit of life is Christ Jesus. Look at verse number four, the end of it, but after the spirit. Look at verse number five at the end of it, but they are after the spirit the things of the Spirit, verse number 9, but ye are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit. If so, be that the Spirit of God dwell in you. Now, if any man have not the Spirit of Christ, he is none of his. 10 says, but the Spirit is life. 11 says, but if the Spirit of him that raised up Jesus from the dead. We'll not keep going. 19 separate occasions, the Spirit, the Holy Spirit is referenced in Romans chapter number 8. The word sin is, re is mentioned more often in Romans chapter number 6 than any other chapter in your New Testament. The word law is mentioned more often in Romans chapter number 7 than any other chapter in the New Testament. And the word spirit is mentioned in Romans chapter number 8 than any other chapter in your New Testament. What's the point? We are now free from sin, Romans chapter 6. We are now free from the law, Romans chapter number 7. But we haven't been left empty. We've been, we're not just an emancipated people who are free from the bondage of sin and law, but we're an empowered people. And inside us has been put the Spirit of God, this tremendous resource and power that we can use. So that's the abundance in the chapter. I want you to notice <clears throat> as we continue the absence in the passage. There's something that's glaringly missing in Romans chapter number 8. Because if you think about being in a living section of the book of, 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 of a Bible or of the book of Romans, you would expect there to be a command or an instruction or an imperative. But as you read down through the 39 verses of Romans chapter number 8, you will not find one instruction in this chapter. You will not find one imperative in this chapter. Read it as fast and slow as you want in whatever language you want. There isn't one instruction. And I think that brings us back to the point that we were making at the start that... Uh, as Christians, quite often we like a little checklist of things to do and things not to do. And there are imperatives in the Bible and instructions, we understand that. But the point that Paul is driving at in Romans chapter number 8 is that, that that's not really how a Christian's life is lived. Automatically, through the empowering energy and stimulus of the Spirit of God, then these wonderful things that other scriptures talk about should come out in our life. We would like a little, a little section, maybe, uh, of the Bible that says, you know, thou shalt not, thou shalt not take off your Sunday clothes and put on your normal clothes on a Sunday, and we would maybe tick that, or you know, thou shalt not go to a water park on a Sunday, but maybe if you're from Ireland and nobody knows, it might be okay, or... You know, they shall not play golf. I can do that. I'm, I'm hopeless at golf, so I, I'll tick that box. That makes me... Very, no, that's not how the Christian life is. It's, it's not rules. It's not the restraint of an external code. It's not rules and regulations. 
but it's the, the constraint of this wonderful power, the Spirit of God that's inside us. This chapter pulsates with life and power of Christian living, which is led by the resident Spirit of God. We're not pushed out and told to, to get on ourselves and, and do the best with, without any resources. No, when we get saved, we're given this tremendous resource. We are an empowered people. We're stimulated by the Spirit of God. So that's the, that's the absence in the chapter. It's interesting that there's not one instruction not one imperative in Romans chapter number 8. Let's think then of the, the contrast, the opposites in the chapter, or the antitheses of the chapter. And I'm going to hang my message upon the various contrasts, and that will maybe structure the chapter for us. And then we are, we're just going to look at the last little section um, and go into it in a little bit more detail. So the first four verses, <clears throat> and I identify this in a minute, contrasts the flesh and the spirit. So if you just open up Romans chapter 8, and if you look there in verse number 1, you can see the contrast. Walk not after the flesh, but after the Spirit. That's repeated again in verse 4. Walk not after the flesh, but after the Spirit. So what the apostle is doing in the first four verses of this chapter, he's addressing the power of sin. He's telling us that the Holy Spirit is now seen as a new power. The flesh compared to the Spirit. Now, when you read Romans chapter 8, please understand that it's positional truth that you're being taught in the book of Romans chapter number 8. This isn't got to do with two types of Christian, one who's spiritual and one who's fleshly or worldly. When it comes to someone who walks after the flesh in Romans chapter 8, you're not saved. That's an unbeliever. That's what you were like before you were saved. And the moment you get saved, you then walk after the Spirit. There's a law it speaks about in these first four verses, a principle that needs to be broken. Whenever we took off from Dublin Airport, and I don't think anyone's after us for it, but we we, we broke the law in Dublin Airport. They don't tell too many people about that, but there was a law called the law of gravity. It's really a principle, isn't it? And what over, we, we broke that law by using the law of aerodynamics, a superior law. A law that was able to go out over and above the law of gravity. That's exactly what Paul is saying in these first four verses of Romans chapter number four. The law of the flesh, of sin, has been been broken by a superior law, a superior principle, the principle of the Spirit. So here the apostle, he's, he's addressing the power of sin. And it's the Holy Spirit that's seen as a a new power in this section. Let's look then at verses number 4 to 11. And I'm going to identify the contrast. It's not now the flesh and the Spirit. But the contrast between verses number 5 and 11 is that of death and life. Death and life. Look at verse 6. For to be carnally minded is death, but to be spiritually minded is life. So you see the contrast. Verse 11, you have it again. But if the spirit of him that raised up Jesus from the dead dwell in you, he that raised up Christ from the dead also shall also quicken, so that's the same word as life, your mortal bodies by his spirit that dwelleth in you. So in this section, the contrast is between death and life. And here the apostle, he's addressing the penalty of death. The Holy Spirit has come in 
and indwelt you, has addressed the, the penalty of death, and it's the Holy Spirit that gives you life. What a wonderful thing to, to have the Holy Spirit indwelling us, the residence of the Holy Spirit. It's so important for us to understand the tremendous ministries that the Holy Spirit has in our life. Quite often we, we shy away from it. In fact, as we were driving down this road, there was a huge sign advertising a church. I just forget the exact reference that it said on it, but it was something along the lines of Holy Ghost Power. And it maybe is the Pentecostal churches that has put us off speaking and considering the Spirit of God. But we need to understand and appreciate in a correct manner the tremendous ministry of the Spirit of God in each of our lives. The Spirit of God has an initiating ministry in our lives. So that's when, we, that's when we got the Spirit. The very moment we got saved, younger believers here, I, I know you understand that. I'm just telling you it again so that you appreciate it. Uh, the Holy Spirit doesn't come and reside in someone when they become a, a super-duper Christian or when they reach a certain stage. No, the very moment of salvation, the Holy Spirit comes in. The great chapter 3 um, chapters of our New Testament remind us of that. Galatians 3 and 2 says, As having begun in the Spirit... Titus 3 and 5 says, But according to his mercy, he has saved us by washing regeneration and the renewing of the Holy Spirit. John 3 and 6, That which is born of the flesh is flesh, that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. So the Holy Spirit is the one that, that has an initiating ministry in our lives. An indwelling ministry, that's what this little section of Romans is about. Uh, other passages you could think of is John 14 and verse 16. He shall be with you and shall be in you forever. Um, 1 Corinthians 6 and 19, Know ye not that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit, which ye have of God, and ye are not your own, for you are bought with a price. The Holy Spirit has an intercessory ministry. we look at that a little bit later on. The Holy Spirit has an illuminating ministry. 1 Corinthians chapter 2 and verse 9, I has not seen nor ear heard, God hath revealed them unto us by his Spirit. John 14, the Spirit will teach all things guide you into truth and show you things to come. The Holy Spirit has an incorporating ministry. New birth brings me into the kingdom. That's the big thing. And then inside the kingdom, there's the smaller thing, the church. And it's the Holy Spirit that brought us into the church. That moment we were saved, we were baptized in the Spirit. No such thing as the baptism of the Spirit. And some think that the baptism, or the, the, the day that we were baptized in the Spirit happened once for all at Pentecost. I'm not sure I agree with that. I think you can say very clearly that the moment you get saved, you were baptized in the Spirit. You were immersed in the Spirit. 1 Corinthians chapter number 12. You drank off the Spirit and you were indwelled by the Spirit in that self-same moment, in the moment you get saved. The Spirit of God has an ensuring ministry. First, Second Corinthians 1 tells us that it's the Spirit of God that has sealed us. We've been given the earnest of the Spirit. It's the guarantee, and we'll think about that today as well. And of course, the Spirit of God has an imaging ministry. Second Corinthians 3 and verse 18 tells us that it's the Spirit that helps us change and image the Lord Jesus Christ in our life. And don't forget the responsibilities that you have to the Holy Spirit as well. You're to walk in the Spirit. You're to grieve not the Spirit. You're to hear the Spirit, Revelation chapter 2, you're to pray in the Spirit and you're to be controlled by or be filled by the Spirit. So that's the, um, that's the summary of, of, of these five verses, verses, or these six verses, verses 5 to 11. The contrast is, the, is death and life and he addresses the, the, the penalty of sin. It's the, the Holy Spirit that gives us life. Now we're moving on into verses number 12 to 17. <clears throat> so we've had, we've had flesh and, and spirit as the contrast. We've had death and life as the contrast. And now our contrast in verses 12 to 17 is bondage and liberty. 
bondage and liberty. Look at verse number 12. Brethren, we are debtors not to the flesh. The idea of bondage and liberty. Verse 15, for we have not received the spirit of bondage again to fear. So what's the apostle doing here when he presents the Holy Spirit? He's telling us here that, that he's, he's really addressing the, the paralysis of the fear of bondage. And he says the Holy Spirit has liberated you. The Holy Spirit has given you a great privilege. It shouldn't be an irksome thing for you to yield to the Spirit of God because he is so, lib- he is so liberating in the ministry that he has done in your life. And in this section, he brings in these new words that are used to describe you and me. We're called brethren. We're called sons of God. We're called children of God. And because we have the Spirit indwelling us, we can cry, Abba, Father. That lovely expression that we can use of our Father. What tremendous language is used in this little section. The wonderful freedom that we have. Now let's slow down and let's think about the section that we have read or that Frankie has read to us today. We want to think of the contrast in verses number 18 to 29 or 18 to 30. And it's the contrast of, of suffering and glory. Look at verse 18. For I reckon that the sufferings of this present time are not willing to be compared with the glory that shall be revealed in us. So here he's addressing the pain of suffering. Every believer experiences the pain of suffering. And the Holy Spirit is here as a, as a new prospect, a guarantee of, of heaven, a guarantee of future glory, but also a very present help now to us in our times of need. So there's the four sections, verses 1 to 4, flesh, the spirit, the power of sins addressed by the Holy Spirit. Verses 5 to 11, death, the life, the penalty of sin has been addressed by the Holy Spirit. Verses 12 to 17, bondage, the liberty, the paralysis of fear has been dealt with by the Spirit of God. And now verses 18 to 29, the pain of suffering has been addressed by the Spirit of God. And we're going to look into that just now as we consider it. So let's look at verse number 18. For I reckon, Paul, he knew a little bit about suffering, didn't he, himself? He says, I reckon. He he knows what it's all about. In 2 Corinthians 4 and 17, he said this, Our light affliction worketh for us a far more exceeding and eternal weight of God, of, um, of glory. And Paul, he understood that, that although there was suffering in this present age, in this present time, that there would be a fabulous, a brilliant glory, heaven um, ahead, and what a prospect it was. And he speaks here about the, the scale of glory. It's not worthy to be compared to the sufferings that we have at this present time. So in verse 17, he was speaking about the sufferings that we have with Christ, but now in 18, he goes further. And he thinks about all of the sufferings known to the world. And there's plenty of believers have difficulties and have ailments. And these aren't sufferings because we're linked to Christ. These are sufferings because we're linked to a fallen creation. We'll see that as we come down through this section that the creation is brought in. And look, look at just the end of, of, of verse number 18. He says, For I reckon the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed to us. No, 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 no. Which shall be revealed in us. You see how, how that's carefully worded? There's going to be glory revealed in us. So that's you and me. We're the vessels. We're the vehicles that God will use to display his glory in a coming day. That's a tremendous thing. The reality is that God has big plans for you. God has big plans for me. Plans that transcend time. Plans that, that were conceived before this world um, existed. Plans that stretch right throughout eternity. And you're a part of God's plan. And if God's plan is to 
to, to come to fruition, then he has to take you to heaven. So the fact that you're saved means that you will definitely be in heaven and you're part of God's plan because all the future glory that you and we are going to enjoy, we're the vessels of it. And God must take us to heaven so that he can display his glory. What a wonderful thing it is. And Paul makes that point in Romans 5 as well. You can read that for yourself in your own time. Look at verse 19. <clears throat> How do you know it's going to be so great, Paul? This, this future glory that lies out ahead for us. It's heaven just. But Paul says the whole of creation is waiting for it. Look at verse 19. Look at the earnest expectation of the creature. That word creature just means creation. Creation is longing for this day. The longing creation. It's not just that creation waits, but it's the earnest expectation of creation. It's like a child on Christmas Eve. It's like a child the day before their birthday. There's an excitement that's building. They're on the edge um, of, their, of their seat, just waiting for Christmas Day, waiting for their birthday, bursting at the seams. And so the universe is on the tiptoe of expectation, waiting for this day of glory to, be, um, to appear. For the manifestation of the Son of God? No, 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 that's not what the verse says. For the manifestation of, will you hear this, the Son's of God. So the monkeys and the donkeys and the fish and the trees and all of subhuman creation outside of humans, they're all waiting for this day. They're all waiting for the manifestation of you and me as the sons of God. When Adam fell in the garden, creation came down with it. And it's going to be reversed someday. Whenever Christ comes and whenever there's a new creation, the fall will be reversed and it will, it will far eclipse and far transcend the Garden of Eden and all that God made in creation in the early verses of Genesis. So Paul, he's, he's speaking about creation, verse 19. Verse 20, 21, 22, these four verses, he's talking about creation. He's speaking about the scope of glory. And it can be very easy for us and easy for me to, to think of Calvary just as something for, for me and for my salvation and for my redemption. But Calvary touched the nation. Calvary touches creation, and let's expand our minds and appreciate and understand these things. That's the suspense of creation, verse 19. Let's look at the limitations of creation in verse number 20. For the creature was made subject to vanity, not willingly, but by reason of him who hath subjected the same in hope. So the great creation around us, not including humans, they were subject to bondage. There's a slavery there's a subjection of creation. Creation's existence, it's devoid of meaning. It's futile. It's subject to vanity. Creation played no part in it. It wasn't creation's fault that, that the fall came in. That was Adam's fault at all. It wasn't their choice. But, verse 21, there's going to be a liberating day for creation. The cre this creation shall be delivered into the glorious liberty of the children of God. So verse 19, the cre creation's longing. Verse 20, creation's um, limitation. And then 21, the tremendous liberty whenever creation is, re is released. Verse 21, for we know that the whole creation groaneth and travaileth in pain together until now. And then verse, verse number 22, and not only they but ourselves. So now, instead of, he's, he's bringing in <clears throat> the Christians. So he's talking about creation. He says creation groans. He says creation waits. He says creation hopes. But now he brings alongside the Christian, you and me. And he says that, that, that you groan. And he says that you're waiting, in verse number 23. It says that you're hoping. Both have pain. Both have patience. Both have a prospect. And look, 
at this wonderful um, expression for the Holy Spirit of God, we have the first fruits of the Spirit. Even we ourselves grown with ourselves, waiting for the adoption to wit the redemption of our body. The first fruits of the Spirit, that lovely expression for the Holy Spirit, the down payment, the pledge that we have received the moment we were saved, which guarantees us in the future that a day will disappear when there's no more sufferings, when there's no more pains, when there's no more ailments, when there's no more agony, and we will enter into heaven. What a tremendous prospect it gives us. But then for the rest of the chapter, he doesn't bring creation and the Christian alongside each other and speak about the groanings and the pains that they have, but he contrasts the two. Because what Paul is telling us is that, that although creation is groaning and waiting and hoping for this day of redemption when, when everything will change, he says, but creation has no help <clears throat> throughout that period. And in contrast to creation with no help, he says, you as the Christian, you have a help. You have the Spirit of God. And we look at that now in verses number 24. And 25. For we are, are both saved by hope, by hope um, that is seen, not hope for what a man saith, why doth he yet hope for? But if we hope that um, we see not, then um, do we with patience wait for it? <clears throat> and moving into verse 26, likewise, the Spirit also helpeth our infirmities. For we know not what we should pray for as we ought, but the Spirit itself maketh intercession for us with groanings which cannot be uttered. So let's think about that just and slow down for a little minute. So there's creation. Creation's groaning. All creation can do is wait for the day when it will be redeemed. Here you are. You're groaning. You have pains and aches and sufferings and awful things that you have to do. And it's great to look forward to glory, the day that you'll be in heaven. But in that intermediate period, you have someone, you have something to help you. And it's described here as the Spirit that helpeth. The Spirit himself maketh intercession. It's wonderful to, to consider that this morning, isn't it? Isn't it wonderful to think that throughout all of the, the issues and the dark days that you have, that there's someone that you can, you can speak to. There's someone that you can come to. We have a, a, an ad, we have a high priest, the Lord Jesus Christ, to come to, but we also have the Holy Spirit. And what the apostle is saying he, here is that there may be times in your life when you're so low and you've gone through things that are so difficult that you can't even concentrate to pray, that you can't even put into words, you maybe don't even know what to ask for. And you might just groan. I wonder about people who are in hospital. Some people tell us when you go to hospital, you have plenty of time to pray and you have plenty of time to read. But I'm not just sure that that's correct. To be in a ward in a hospital and of all of the noise of the trolleys going past and to be dealing with all of the sufferings and issues and that you might have, I'm not sure that there's very much time to pray. I'm not sure that there's very much um, ability to concentrate to pray. And what happens with Christians, and you maybe have experienced this in your life, a Christian will maybe just, just groan and they're, they're not even able to put into words what they want to ask for and what they want to say. But this verse makes it very clear that the Holy Spirit takes those groanings and the Holy Spirit presents those groanings before the Father in words that are, are perfect and words that are clear and in words that describe just exactly what you mean to say and what you want to say. A wonderful encouragement too for, for people who maybe have... 
have a, a, a mother or a father, some relative who are maybe riddled with dementia and confusion. And before to you, they were just a beacon of Christian experience. And now they can't probably pray or bring together um, a number of words or anything like that. But they can groan. And as they groan, the Spirit of God takes those groanings and presents them before the Lord. Look at what it says at the end of 26. But the Spirit himself, it should mean, maketh intercession for us with groanings. Now that's our groanings. It's not the Spirit of God that groans. With groanings that cannot be uttered. Those groanings that just come out of the Christian, the Spirit of God makes intercession and presents them to the Lord. Move down into verse number 27. We're nearly finished. And he that searcheth the hearts knoweth what is the mind of the Spirit, because he maketh intercession for the saints. So there's two things that the Spirit has. The Spirit can take your groanings, okay, the things that, that you want to ask for. But in 27, the Spirit knows what you should ask for. The Spirit knows the will of God. And the Spirit is able to bring those two things together and present those to the Lord in harmony. Quite often, we don't know the will of God. Quite often we maybe pray for the wrong things, but the Spirit of God, He knows your groanings. The Spirit of God knows the will of God and He's able to bring those two things together and present them to the Lord. And then verse 28, And we know that all things work together for good to them that love God. That's a verse that's often quoted. And I wonder, do we understand what that means? Do all things work together for good? Really? Do they? What about those dark days? What about those days when we're in the valley? What about those awful tragedies that come into the life of believers? Are they for good, really? Well, let's just come down through the verse word by word and just understand um, what the apostle is saying. All things. So that's not just the nice things and the easy things. That's the breakdowns, the illnesses, the bad things, the black things, the burdensome things. All things. It includes the worst things. Work. Things don't just happen in your life. Everything or every instance that comes into your life does a job. It does some work together. Now, here's the key. If you were to isolate some things that have happened in a Christian's life and take them out over here and look at them by themselves alone, some tragedy, some awful thing, well, really, we can't say that this verse is correct then. Sure, we can. But if you take the bad and you mix it in with all of the good things, that have happened in a Christian life and bring them all together, then you can see, the good, the bad, and the ugly, as they say, then you can see that they work together for good. Now, what's the good? Is the good a happy life and wonderful families? Is that what good means? Does good mean a brilliant job and, and going on holidays and all the rest of it? Well, Scripture's a great interpreter of Scripture, isn't it? And just cast your eyes as we finish to verse number 29, and we'll see what the good is. For whom he did foreknow, he also did predestinate to be, and here's the good, to be conformed to the image of his Son. That's what God's working towards. Let's read that verse, the previous verse again. All things work together for good. All things work together to bring you, to get you and me to be conformed to the image of this Son. Now this chapter is done a full circle. What was the start of the chapter say? The start of the chapter said that, that God sending his son in the likeness of sinful flesh. We are glad that God, the son, came down and became like us. And what is this verse, what is this chapter now telling us that we should become like? Well, we should just do the reverse. We, as human beings, should become like 
the Son, like the Lord Jesus Christ, to be conformed to his image. There's an artist, and he was, he was a sculptor, and he was tasked with the job of, of making an elephant out of a block of stone. That was his job, that's what he was good at. And he started to chisel away at it, and the man came along and said, what are you making? And the man said, I'm going to make an elephant out of this block of stone. How on earth do you do that? Well, the artist, the sculptor, he said, it's very simple, very, very simple to make an elephant out of a block of stone. All that you have to do is just take away the bits that aren't elephant, and you'll be left with an elephant. That's exactly what God's doing with you and me. He's taking away the bits that aren't son, and whenever he has us like his son, um, we'll be ready for glory, we'll be ready for heaven. And in the meantime, we have the Spirit that will help us during that time. We'll bow our heads in a word of prayer. Father, we give thanks for the Lord Jesus Christ. We bless thee for the Scriptures. We're thankful for men like Paul who could bring these, these truths before us. Help us to understand them. Help us to appreciate the Spirit of God. We're thankful for the, the first fruits of the Spirit, that down payment, that guarantee, that security, that one day we will see heaven, we will see glory. But we're thankful, Father, for the Spirit that helpeth. And we bless thee for the, inter, the interceding and intercessory work of the, the Holy Spirit in our lives. And Father, we do long that um, we will yield ourselves to the Spirit and that we will be, um, be like thy Son, conformed to the image um, of the Son of God. And we look to thee, Father, for thy, for thy help in relation to this. Bless the, the believers here. We're thankful for, for their fellowship this morning as we look, look to thee now to take us home in safety in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. We thank you very much again for your, for your time this morning. And may the Lord bless us all.